over the years, from almost earliest childhood, we sit under the authority, don't we, of different teachers. There's all sorts of people in our lives that lead us and teach us and have authority over us. So we can have sort of nursery teachers and school teachers and Sunday school teachers. We can have swimming instructors and driving instructors. We can have lecturers and seminar takers. And uh, you can have sort of brown owls and scout leaders and all these other things. And I don't know whether you've noticed, but it is clear sometimes that those people there are just doing a job that they're not really interested you as an individual. They're there to carry out their duties, to get through to the end of the day, and then they can sort of put everything away and go home. And and I've encountered uh, lots of teachers like that. You know, they just want to get the job done. Uh, They want to uh, 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 earn their wages, and then they finish at that. And that is fine. But it's not always inspiring, and it is not always uh, the best. Sometimes you have and you discover a teacher with a degree of passion, a degree of vim and enthusiasm that is contagious. You have a teacher that also has a connection with you, a teacher that... Um, sees you not just as another student, but as someone that they want to impart something to. And uh, what they do is they carry you along with all their enthusiasm, with their energy, with their investment. And what happens is they become so invested in our lives that our welfare and our achievements actually matter to them. I don't know if you've ever had uh, a teacher. I remember a couple of uh, college uh, professors. Uh, Some of them could not care less whether I uh, um, sort of sunk or floated, whether I won or lost. But some of them, they knew what was going on in my life and they would ask after it and they knew the sort of peculiar struggles I would have in a subject and that they would pay attention to that to bring me up to speed with the rest of the class. And sometimes you would get sort of good exam results at the end of the year and they were chuffed with you. And that is, there, is, there is that connection there and that helpfulness. That is a real blessing. And I don't know about you, but I respond really well to that. If I am just a student to a teacher and they just wanted to get their job done, then it's very much a cold transaction. They are teaching, I am learning, and at the end of the day, we, uh, um, we just go our separate ways. But the teachers that come into our lives, that invest that care, uh, that impart, I kind of rise to the occasion. I don't know if you've ever had that, whether there are particular subjects at school or outside of school where a teacher cares and then suddenly you kind of rise to the occasion and, and you go, I want to win in this. I want to do well. This, this teacher's giving me the tools I need to do more than I thought possible. And uh, Hollywood is full of stories of teachers slightly out of the norm, 
Dead Poets Society and Robin Williams, where he plays this great professor who wants to kind of encourage his students. Um, and perhaps less highbrow is uh, Jack Black in School of Rock, who inspires his... Uh, um, is students to uh, uh, sort of get into music. Uh, uh, but it's kind of a, a, a well-observed fact that um, teachers that sort of plough into their kids uh, with heart and emotion and time, it, it, it reaps rewards. So this morning, we're going to find out what sort of teacher Peter is. Is he the one that... Uh, is involved in a transaction and then he just goes on his way? Or is he someone a little bit more invested? So if you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. I've got so many notes now and underlinings and scribbles over 1 Peter that I can barely read it. Um, But here goes. Um, Dear friends, in verse 11, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let me read that again. There's some great phrases. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. In my translation, it says, dear friends. But Peter uses the word that I've got up on the slide, and that's uh, agape teos. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but the beginning of that word is a word that Christians should be familiar with. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, Um, this Greek word should leap off the page at you and you should say, I recognise that. And it's the word agape. You see, it's the sort of the the start of the word. And so the root of the word that Peter is using to talk to his students is agape, this word. Love, and he's called them. He's calling them loved ones. He's calling them the beloved. This is this word that Christianity took over. You know, it was a Greek word used uh, 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 fairly often, but Christianity took it over, made it its own, and it becomes this relentless, selfless, unconditional affection of God. And, and we sung about it this morning, and, and we sung about it at Kevin Dom's wedding yesterday, this agape love of God. And so Peter takes this word and he applies it to the people he's addressing. They aren't students. They aren't even friends, even though the NIV would reduce it to dear friends. He says, my beloved. 
This is a term of intense affection. Peter is profoundly invested in the lives of those he is reaching out to. He is writing to these Christians scattered around Turkey. And he's saying, you know what, I may not be physically with you, but you can be in no doubt as to my heart and to my love and to my cheering you on. I want you to succeed. He is Jack Black in School of Rock urging his uh, students to play uh, rock music. He is Robin Williams urging uh, his students to act out Shakespeare. He is urging his students, I want you to succeed. I desperately love you and I want you to rise to the occasion. I'm not going to just give you information and then it's up to you how you deal with it. Because that can happen. You know, you can have a sermon where someone comes up and they give you some nice Bible verses and they give you some clear wisdom and they go out the door and you were like, well, that was a nice experience. But Peter is really thrusting it home. Very beginning of this paragraph, it's, Beloved, thy loved ones, the ones I care about, the ones I want to succeed. And this is Peter fulfilling that instruction Jesus gave him. Jesus, um, after sort of Peter betrayed him three times, and then at the end of John where uh, Jesus kind of restores Peter and says, even though you've completely failed in every way, and that most churches would not have you back even as someone to clean up after the meeting. I want you to lead my sheep. I want you to be careful of them. I want you to tend them as I would. And we find here in this one word, Peter is the under-shepherd that Jesus longed and uh, instructed him to be. And we are listening here to the frank and full advice of someone uh, that has a warmth, respect, and hope for those he's talking to. He presses in. He says, I want you to hear this. This is important. My beloved, you need to listen up. I need you to succeed. I love you too much for you to fail. And hopefully, just from this one word, we're going to go, well, Kevin, what? let's move on from agapetos. Let's hear what... This guy has to say, what is so important that he would um, start it off with this uh, profound Christian term? It has to be the best help, doesn't it? Isn't what Peter going to say something that's poignant and uh, uh, world-changing? So the apostle then moves on from this agapetos. And he doubles down. He Uh, doubles up on it because then he goes my beloved I strongly urge you and I love to read all the different theologians that go whatever translation you've used it's too weak and they kind of all pile on into the text and say we need to have a word that's more than strongly urges we want to have a word that means compel we want to have a word that sort of translates Peter's fire in this text. He says, beloved, I strongly urge you. I demand, I need you to do this. 
What he says is important. And it is the words of a loving under-shepherds. And he says, Planet Earth is not your home. This space and time, it is where you exist right now, but it is not your destiny. Your home, your belongings, even your partner and your children and your family, this is not your destiny. Your job, that is not your destiny. You are travellers. And Peter just goes on about being travellers again and again um, in his book. This is not your home. And because it is not your home, there are implications for it. It doesn't mean that you can just lie in bed and avoid work or be rude to anyone you see fit because it doesn't matter. That is not what Peter's going to say. He says, this world is not your home and the implication and uh, uh, the meaning of this for Peter in this place He begs them to abstain from sin. He says, the most important thing that I have to say to you, my beloved, what am I going to strongly urge you to do, is abstain from sin. And then he tells them why. Because people are like, well, is it such a big deal? You know, Christ died for us. He cleansed all our sins. Is sin really a big deal? Is it uh, 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 a big deal to uh, uh, do those things that, Um, I know that he isn't best pleased with. Well, Peter says, My beloved, I strongly urgedly to abstain from sin. Why? Because it assaults the inner being. Your inner being is touched by sin. He says, If you dare to entertain rebellion in your soul, you are denying who you are and you will know the core of your soul attacked and Peter sends these words out very clearly and starkly he says you're my beloved and I strongly urge you this abstain from sin why because this is not your home and sin wars against your soul turn to Uh, the next uh, sort of set of books uh, turn to 1 John chapter 1 so it says this in 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. Everyone say light. Light. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. None. If you're looking for darkness, don't go looking at God because he's light. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, 
As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Everyone say all. All All unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, uh, we make him out to be a liar and his words is not in us. Let me tell you, um, your life expectancy is not great if you start calling God a liar. In this passage from Peter's good mate John, we are given this lovely picture of what God is like. He's not an old Caucasian guy with a bit of a belly and a long white beard. This is the picture John gives us. This is John, uh, possibly Jesus' closest friend. And John says, God is light. If you want to uh, imagine uh, God from John's perspective, it is light. Radiant, perfect light shining out. And it's quite a striking way to consider God. To take in something of his holiness and glory. That shining light that takes away all darkness, that goes out into every nook and cranny and brings illumination. And it is something inspiring and it is something that causes awe to rise in our souls. God is light. However, John tells us, Sin, if you want to consider that in respect to God and God is light, then sin is darkness. It is the absence of God. If God is goodness and light and holiness and perfection, sin is the absolute opposite of that. It is darkness. It is horrible. It is evil. Sin, those things that we do in rebellion to God, is the absence of God. It is a vacuum of godliness in our lives. And John tells us clearly that darkness can't be something we tolerate. God is light. He is lovely. We want to walk in his presence. His salvation is the only one on offer. And so any sin in our lives is the absence of God and it needs dealing with. It needs dealing with first... By confessing Christ. You need, before you do anything else, you need to confess Christ as Lord and Saviour and lean into that salvation. That is the first way and thing that you do to deal with sin in your life. You have to get saved because Jesus died on that cross to make amends for it. But there is an ongoing method that Christians have to deal with sin. Because, I don't know whether you noticed, you may, be, you may come to Jesus, you may confess his name, you may trust in his body and his blood, you may enjoy communion once a month with us. But you keep sinning. You keep doing stuff that you know is wrong, that the Bible clearly articulates is darkness and anti-God. It is anti-Christ. 
And John tells us how to deal with that. We don't self-flagellate ourselves going, woe is me. We don't avoid Christian, uh, Christians and church. We don't um, sort of bury ourselves in a, a convent high, on, high up on a mountainside. Uh, what we do is we confess. We confess. For the rest of our lives, we go on confessing our sin. We go to God and say, God, I'm sorry I've done this. We evaluate our lives. We evaluate the behaviours we've exhibited even the day before and say, you know what, that was wrong and I need to uh, ask for forgiveness. I can't make amends for it. You can't come and lead worship, speak up the front, sort of plough a load of money into our church funds or anything. There is no way of making amends from it, but God does say that you confess it. Jesus has already paid the price, but you need to confess it. You need to allow God's light to be shine, shone into it. And sometimes, and I don't know how good you are at doing this, sometimes we need to confess our sin to each other. Um, when people pray, when we pray for healing for people, it is uh, sort of uh, an opportunity sometimes for me to ask, is there anything in your life that you need to confess? I'm not saying that all sickness is related to sin, but it does seem to be a biblical principle that it can be. It's a possibility. And so confession is important. But we need to confess our sins to each other. And home group is an excellent place for that. Not perhaps to share the deepest, darkest places of your soul, because sometimes home group's not ready for that. But sometimes we can talk generally and uh, sort of uh, skirt around an issue and say, you know what, I struggle with this area. And home group sometimes can deal with that. But we need to confess our sins to God and each other. We need to be in a good relationship with each other where we can say, you know, Barry, I struggle with this area in my life. Um, and if I've hurt him through it, he can hopefully forgive me. Um, and if it's not a personal issue, he can say, you know, what? I will stand with you and pray for you and uh, stop you having any opportunity to indulge that sin, if that's uh, possible. And so Peter's words on evil here are for everyone. When he says, beloved, I urge you, it's for everyone. It is for the people that get to hold the microphone up the front to the people uh, that have only just confessed Jesus as Lord and Saviour. All of us need to hear that confession is important and that sin can have no place in our lives. Now, We can only give darkness room in our lives if we neglect one of Peter's categories. And and he took us through a a succession of points which led to this idea. Firstly, some of us don't really believe we're exiles. We don't believe we're travellers and we don't believe we're foreigners. We are playing at knowing Jesus. Our heart is in our possessions, in our home, in our family connections, uh, in our work. Our heart is in this place. 
And we are at home here. We think, really, in the heart of hearts, I'm here for a while, I'm going to thoroughly enjoy myself as much as I can. And that is a confusion of categories for Peter. He says, you're exiles, you're travellers going through. Don't set up camp in this world. Don't let it be the place where you feel most comfortable. Some of us, we come, we enjoy a good song, you know, we can listen to Tim and we go, yeah, I love these songs, man, love good go karaoke, this is the best. But our daily lives are exactly the same as everyone else. Our morality, our ethics, the way we love, we just look like everyone else because we have made our home here. We are building an estate, a home, a mansion here on earth because this is where we are. And Peter says, yeah, that's not actually who you are at all. If you've got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. says this in Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy well my brother told us how fire destroys as well if you've got a dodgy tumble dryer Uh, but I don't think Jesus knew about tumble dryers Um, and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where tumble dryers do not spontaneously combust, and where thieves do not break in the steel. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your treasure? Where is your heart? What do you care about? What do you talk about? What do you invest in? What do you worry about? What makes you anxious? Whatever that is located, that is where your heart is. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Who can serve two masters? No one. No one. You are not a special example of someone that can serve two masters. You are not the only one in all of humanity that have worked out how to uh, make home on earth and look forward to a home in heaven. It's impossible. Jesus said you can't do it. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And then Jesus gets a little bit specific And let some of us off the hook, and others of us are sort of uh, impacted. He goes, you can't serve both God and money. If you care, if you worry, if you fret, if you're greedy, if you accumulate, then money is your master, and God really is not. But the thing is, this can be applied to so many things in life. Um, I always find it challenging when Jesus talks about family connections. He said, you know what? Those family connections come second. 
You're like, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm a dad and a husband and a son, but obviously those connections are important. He goes, they're important, but they come second to me. I am your master. I am the one in charge. I am the one your home should be and your love should be. Everything else should be second to that. And some of us go, well, I haven't got anyone I care about in my life and I haven't got any money, so surely uh, that's it. But the thing is, we have other stuff as well. Just the absence of that category in your life does not mean that somehow uh, uh, you're really good at it. We all have things in our lives that we choose over God. If we pursue wealth, prioritize ourselves, indulge destructive whims and appetites... Our citizenship is no more in heaven than it is on the moon. It's ridiculous. We, there is clearly no heavenly passport in our back pocket. It is imperative we can confess and act out that Jesus is our master. We must say it and we must live it. Heaven is our home. We just passing through and do you know what isn't it interesting I think Sunday mornings is the only time that you hear this every advert and TV program and conversation we have with friends and relatives is make your home here have your best life now that may be the subject of a a terrible Christian book but um, the idea is that we're travellers passing through and um We need to live like this. So the first way of allowing sin is that we don't really think we're travellers. We don't really think heaven is our home. We don't really think that that you can't serve two masters. Secondly, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit to identify evil. Our language, leisure, attitude and finances can all harbour sin that we need to be called out of. It is really fascinating when sort of new Christians come in and then you start talking about life and then you go, yeah, God doesn't like that aspect of your life. And it's never occurred to them to review it or think about it or to allow God's light to shine on it. Cheating on benefits, watching porn and pirating media. They're not in the Bible. None of those things have been addressed by the Ten Commandments or by that first century Messiah, Jesus. These are new sins. The Bible doesn't touch on them, but the Bible does give us principles which we can bring to them and say, yeah, I'm not sure that's a healthy way to live. Yeah, I'm not sure that sort of activity is one that God delights in. And the Holy Spirit in us, if we listen to him, because we're really good at shutting him down and going, I'm going to watch this, I'm going to do this, regardless of any Holy Spirit nonsense. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, you're not going to do that. Uh, God is light and that is darkness and the two are incompatible and you need to choose a master. And so we need to continually examine our lives. 
and allow God to highlight the rebelliousness that lies there. For all of us have these uh, corners and recesses of our life that uh, harbour sin. And if you've been a Christian any amount of time, then you're quite good at hiding it, probably. You're, you're good at looking Christian-like, but you're quite good at hiding the darkness. And even as I talk, I'm like, Flip, I am good at hiding it, because um, that's actually really true for me as well. We're really good at hiding it and pretending that that bit's fine or doing it in a dark corner and imagining no one sees it. But you have to let the Holy Spirit and the light of God to come in. Thirdly and finally, we need to recognise that sin is not harmless. It is really easy to pretend to ourselves that it doesn't really hurt anyone. You know, my dodgy dealings with money or um, terrible sort of visits on the internet. You know, these are victimless crimes. God understands. And Peter comes very near at this point. He goes, you know I called you beloved. Well, I'm strongly urging you to abstain from sin. Peter has this deep love in his eyes and he says, sin wars against your soul. It isn't like muddy boots that my kids acquire during the winter that, you know, it's easily wash-offable. You know what? It's just a, it's just a surface mess that will just come off. Peter says... Despite all the activity of Christ, despite his blood washing away sins, despite the power of confessing, if we don't abstain from sin, it wars against our soul. Peter uses incredibly strong language here. He says it tackles that inner being that we are supposed to be nurturing for God's purposes. When we cultivate darkness... In our lives, we lose spiritual sensitivity. You lose it. You are not aware of what is going on. Your prayer life is out of whack. When you pray out loud, it has a strange sense to it because it is not quite in tune with what's going on out there. When you try and prophesy, it's kind of out of whack because it is not sensitive to what is doing. When you come to church, there is a coldness in your soul that even if it's me singing a cappella, there should be a warmth there because we're worshipping God, but the spiritually insensitive because they have been indulging sin is cold and church becomes boring and arcane and, and something foreign because sin wars against your soul. Sin is not just mud that washes off. It is something that tackles it. And it leads to more problems just than insensitivity. We are trusted with less. If we allow sin to exist, God trusts us with less. These spiritual gifts that go pop and whiz around the room... They're absent from your life. 
because you are allowing and tolerating a sin which is warring against your soul. And the fruit of goodness and joy and peace that we see in other mature Christians, that is something we lose because we are allowing sin to war against our soul. If we allow sin, we can only know the shallows of faith, that deep joy and peace and mission and purpose, they come out of reach because God cannot draw us deeper into himself. We cannot know him if we are full of darkness. If we are allowing, yes, God, you can shine there, but I'm going to protect this bit from your light. And, he, and God goes, well, I can't bring you in to my radiant illumination because you have this darkness here. We're incompatible. It doesn't work. And possibly easiest to deal with, but the worst impact is that allowing sin, I think, limits our heavenly reward. Now, the sort of exact dynamics of this are not sort of plain. But it seems that our Christian life, as we, as we act as travellers through this world, we get to earn a heavenly reward. And that was in Jesus' things, where your treasure is, there is your heart. is. And if you uh, act as a traveller in this world, if you don't allow things to uh, be home to you here, then you build a great big home in heaven, in God's presence. But... If you harbour sin, if you make this life more important, then that eternal reward is diminished. Now, there's all sorts of arguments over that, but I think um, I can go so far, and, and, and most sort of theologians will recognise that the, our actions now have some sort of consequence in eternity. And that harbouring sin is not good your eternal reward so if you would like a good eternal reward if you want to be welcomed into heaven with cymbals and guitars and klaxon and whatever else then abstain from sin in the second verse that we looked at from peter today just show you this i quite like it how good's that a picture of lions um after emphasizing our identity as travellers and identifying the terrible nature of sin, Peter moves on to the more public face of our faith. A private Christian faith is good. You know, you can pray and read your Bible and tithe and and do things in the quiet that are, are appropriate and proper. But Peter says... We have been chosen to live our lives for everyone to see. There is no one here stuck up in a monastery anywhere and you just spend all your time brewing beer and sort of uh, praying. We all live with pagan neighbours and pagan work colleagues and pagan family. And they look and make an evaluation of our faith every day. In verse 12, Peter said, 
it is difficult. If you struggle with it, Peter says, I expect you to struggle with it. I do not expect you to find it easy. And he says, one of the things that sort of in Peter's time is we get false accusations would fly. You know, uh, uh, ways to take the Christian down or two by um, saying something outrageous. Many, many people will not quickly embrace you once you declare your allegiance to Jesus. Um, Weddings are a fascinating one. If I go to a wedding, just as a normal bod, I can sit on a table and people talk to me and I can have a great time. But if I've led the wedding, you can see people be a little bit cautious and you can see some people just sort of race past me and avoid me. And the dynamics are very different. So if I'm just a normal board, no one knows I'm a Christian, they can swear and drink and smoke and not feel um, the, the, the slightest touch of conscience. But if they've seen me up front do the wedding vows, they're like, oh, he's holier than thou. Oh, he's someone uh, that's reminiscent of a bad experience in my childhood. Or this, that and another. And the wedding becomes a completely different dynamic once you say you love Jesus people treat you differently they look at you strangely they forget to invite you to stuff and also they look for ways to pick you apart because suddenly you in their minds are pretending to be holy and they don't feel holy and they want to take you down a peg or two Uh, turn to Daniel chapter 6 as if you didn't guess with lions on the screen Time's got on. I'm not going to read it all. Can I sort of land in the verse first? Um, So there's these guys conspiring against Daniel, and they say no one's to pray, and then Daniel prays to his God anyway, and then the conspirators point the finger at him and say, see, king, you need to punish him. Um, And and the king answers their question. The, The creed stands in verse in verse 12 in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians which cannot be repealed then they said to the king Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah pays no attention to you Um, I'm not sure they make that quite the whinging voice but certainly the one in my head as they talk your majesty um, or my attention to you your majesty or to the decree to which you put in writing he still prays three times a day When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was very determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until the sun set to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. And the king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. You can imagine him essentially saying, good luck, mate. In you go. In the middle of this pagan Babylonian empire, Daniel's um, faithful activity stirs resentment and jealousy. If you haven't encountered that, then I would suggest that 
Um, I forget which, whether it's Kev or Pete, talk about being a submarine Christian. Um, if you've not encountered some sort of... Um, and some sort of obstacles from neighbours and friends and school and work colleagues, um, then you've probably kept your, your head down a little too well. Uh, but once you pop your head up, uh, resentments and jealousies hit in. Um, and it's really o- obvious and um, common for believers to, at work, be truthful, hardworking and conscientious because we kind of feel we're working not for our boss but for Jesus and, and, and so we work a little differently and so we get valued and appreciated by the, uh, uh, the bigger business at large and then other people despise us and don't like us. Uh, my uh, uh, staff sometimes think I'm pedantic because I don't like uh, uh, um, sort of um, things to just let go and I don't like... Um, if things are to be done properly, then they should be done properly. And, 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 and so other people go, you're just, you're just too much, man. Just, just we're, we're going to come against you. And uh, they, people often despise us for that. And so in, in Daniel's case, his faith, his persistence, his good conduct calls him to be thrown into a prison and to be devoured by wild animals, or at least that is the expectation. However, Daniel's goodness turns everything around. Not only does God save him being savaged by, his, uh, by lions, but his enemies are vanquished. It's a, it's a wonderful reversal. And then the king says this, and this is the sort of last reading, and we're going to sort of uh, close. Says this in Daniel chapter 6, verse 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and the peoples of every language in all the earth. You can get that sense of the vastness of his empire. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and uh, reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Daniel abstained from sin that warred against his soul and he lived well amongst the pagans. Now, realise Daniel uprightness did land him in the lion's den, but after the lion's den, the king that he served made this proclamation of faith to an entire pagan empire. I just sort of wonder at that change. He was a little Jew that was kicked into a lion's den and suddenly his proclamation was spread throughout Babylon. Beloved, Daniel is a flesh and blood example of Peter's point here. The lords of this time and place are not our lords. We serve a different king in private and publicly. When this lands us in discomfort and danger, our solution shouldn't be just to fade away into the crowd, you know, sort of submarine that Christianity. Instead, we keep 
those habits and those lifestyles that help our inner being rather than cripple it. And sometimes, not every time, but sometimes, our courage and convictions leads a king to bow the knee and spread the word across his empire that the God we serve is the true one. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Peter's intensity here. We thank you for his devotion uh, to uh, these people in Turkey. We thank you for his stark wisdom and warning about sin. Lord God, I pray that we would be bad at sinning, that we would be bad at cultivating it, that we would be bad at sustaining it, that we would allow your light to shine in. And Heavenly Father, when it gets hard to be a Christian, when people scoff and moan and whinge and ridicule, Lord God, I pray that you'd help us have the uh, courage and conviction to keep on. And Lord God, we really ask, not that life is just full, really hard work all the time, but that you would change uh, the hearts of kings around us to a place where they see the reality of the God that we serve and they become proponents of you. Lord God, I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.